Hello everyone, this is the 21st Rewrite, and I am William Coldwell, just here to offer an introduction to this week's episode. The Lost City of Zed was a screenplay written by James Gray, who adapted the story from a non-fiction work of investigative journalism by David Gran. As usual, we are going to discuss the full scope of the story, so this is our standard spoiler warning. However, the events covered in the film all happened before 1926, so if you are interested in the topic but haven't seen the film yet, you're hardly going to be surprised by the ending, considering that every mention of the subject of the film, the British explorer Percy Fawcett, will pretty much tell you what happened to him. We look at the historical story, as portrayed by Gran in the book, and the changes that are made to the factual events by the screenplay version. The key themes of the screenplay led to a really fascinating conversation, so I hope you enjoy the episode. James Gray went on to direct the film, which starred Charlie Hunnam as Percy Fawcett, Sienna Miller as his wife Nina Fawcett, Tom Holland as his son Jack, and Robert Pattinson as Henry Costin. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast where we discuss a screenplay from the 21st century and the process of writing it. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. And I'm very happy to be here to discuss The Lost City of Zed, uh, based on a book that's based on a true story. And it was a, it was a very beautiful film. I first really, time you saw it? First time I saw it. And I didn't really know anything about it. I read the script, and I thought about re- like doing research while I was reading it. But I was like, I want to enter it completely not knowing anything about it. So I read the script, and then I watched the film. I didn't even know it was a true story in the script. It doesn't really specify, or I might have skipped that part. But the whole time I thought it was kind of fiction. So when I watched the film and I found out, I was like really, really intrigued by the entire story about this man who just disappeared. I think there's always something about those stories where there's no conclusion, where just your imagination kind of goes wild as to what could have happened to this guy. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, he was a larger-than-life character. And the the film does does give its own opinion on what might have happened to him it Uh, does and it's heavily influenced by this book by david gran right but also as we'll kind of explore over the course of this episode it's not entirely true even to the account put forward in that book so there's a lot of liberties taken with the story to make it a viable film and at the same time this film is still very i'd still consider it almost like an indie film it's not very Hollywoodized. Yeah. No, the budget I believe was thirty million, which is not a big budget whatsoever compared to other big studio films. Not not at mm-hmm. all. So yeah, it's a smaller film, but it has like an epic feel to it. I Absolutely, think, and it it covers yeah. various geographic locations, yes. uh, different continents, different cultures. Yes, and it's very much about this uh, meeting of civilizations which is still kind of unresolved to this day. There's still many questions that the film is trying to raise and have us interact with over the course of it. The ideas of European supremacy, Mm. culture itself, and Mm. and things like that. And another one that I'd love us to talk about at some point is Hostiles, the the Christian Bale Western, which is um, kind of known as a... I, I think they're calling it a revisionist Western. Mm. which is basically saying all of those old cowboy and Indian stories were so ridiculous, we're going to to set one up 
with a historical basis. This is very much like a revisiting of the the old explorer idea, the Indiana Jones, but yeah, with a conscience. Yeah, a little more grounded. I think that that's kind of what stuck out with me. Like, was it felt very Indiana Jones, uh, early 1900s, or well, it's the 19. 19- it covers different times. The first scene is in 1903 in the mm. film, and Fawcett goes missing in 1925. Right. Yeah. So it covers a good 20 years or yes. so, two decades. And he was born in towards the end of the 1800s, I believe, in 1860. No. Yeah, you're right. I, I need to look this I up. I think it when, was no. When he I was born. I just read it actually. It's 1867. 1867. Yes. I was, I was trying to add that up, and I thought that doesn't that doesn't doesn't add up. I thought he was 52 when he went missing, but that does add up. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he he lived a long life in that sense for someone who was <laughs> facing the dangers of yellow fever and malaria. And, yeah. No, he was very re- things quite. <laughs> he was a very resilient man. I feel, and. Going back to the whole Indiana Jones thing, I think there's something about that era in the early like 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. These discoveries, I think, really captured people's uh, fascination as to ancient ruins and past civilizations. I think it was the absence of technology that made it even more exciting because a lot of terrains were not mapped out. So there was definitely the sense of adventure going into unknown land, which I don't think we really have today. I think we have every single piece of this earth uh, mapped out we know where everything is kind of so there was that excitement and i think that's part of the appeal with indiana jones too because it's set in similar time frame so mm-hmm. there's something about that time that really adds to the story i think it's a really good sense of adventure that uh really comes through in the film force was part of the royal geographical society that had this mission of mapping the entirety of yeah. the planet yeah. And they made celebrities out of the people who were willing to go to the, the yeah. last places on, on the earth that were unmapped. It's quite surprising that Bolivia and Brazil were, they had an official border that was completely mm. unmapped because no one could get in there. And yeah. of course, it ended up going there because we, we think of unmapped places as being like the, the South Pole and places where there were just no people. Right. But these were inhabited places. It's just that colonial society wasn't able to to get into those those places in in any significant way although it did obviously change the lives of the the native peoples which is something that will come up later because this is something that Fawcett became aware of as he was exploring mm-hmm. is that he started to believe that the reason the natives were so warlike and violent was in response to the slave trade that was going on in the rubber colonies and right. so they had become more and more aggressive and protective of their territory simply because it was so dangerous to be neighbors with the descendants of Europeans, the Bolivians and Brazilians who were exploiting the rubber trade. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that conflict, uh, because essentially he sent on a mission to kind of be the referee of what the border mm-hmm. dispute is, like where everything should be or whatever. And I find that really fascinating. Like you said, the fact that there were no like borders per se officially as to that's interesting to me because you think about it yeah there was no satellites up in space there's no real way of like you had to use your imagination how do you draw a map if you've never seen it from above i found that really interesting mm-hmm. as to how they would map back then because i never really thought about it but then I, I was like yeah you really have to have a good sense of um space and 
uh, imagination, not imagination, but really get a good sense of terrain and all that stuff. So yeah, they, that's really they had various tools that they could use to measure uh, longitude and latitude as mm-hmm. they were uh, exploring. Mm-hmm. And that was a big part of Fawcett's mission. Right. Simply to map out and mark down by following the course of the river exactly right. where this border was meant to be. But uh, the, the dangers involved. And the film touches on some of the dangers and other things, which I think one was even dropped from the script, which mm. was really interesting about the maggots in the arms. Yeah, that I was think, in the script. I think it's in the, the script, but yeah. taken out of the film. That uh, yes, I think it's Costin Fawcett's companion in the first two missions. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He had maggots in his arm. Yes. And the Indians, they'd learned to whistle that they mm. could that they could make just a noise with their own lips that would get the maggots to stand up on end, and they could pluck them out. Yeah. And Fawcett and his his team couldn't imitate this at all. Right. Had no idea how to do this whistle, but it was just something that the people had learned from living there for so long. Yeah. Simply how to rem- remove these these animals from from under your skin that would yeah. pests, uh, parasites that would grow inside people. And I mean the the conditions are absolutely appalling. It's, in- it's intense. Um, it's like Mother Nature times ten. Like yeah. you know, it's full force, such an abundance of life and mm-hmm. violent life. Yeah. Uh, yeah, piranhas Piran- make yeah, make yeah, a big piranhas. appearance in the film. Fawcett and... claimed to have seen a sixty foot snake, which scientists now believe couldn't have been longer than twenty eight foot. But that's still, oh, you know, when absolutely you're... enormous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you're telling stories, you're bound to exaggerate yeah. little details. You know, yeah. make it more interesting. Yeah, I believe it was an anaconda that he saw. That yeah, he said it was like sixty feet, and he got ridiculed for it. Yeah, there is a fish that will find any hole in your body and burrow in and drink the blood out of it. Oh my god. That's quite well known as a danger in the Amazon River. That's terrible. And that I think that line might have been dropped from the film. It's in the script there. There is a mention of it, I think. Utterly just horrifying the idea of the these these creatures <sighs> that will get inside you. That's crazy because we have a lot of holes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it tends to be the part that's underwater, so it's not going to oh, go well for you. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the people with that affliction, I think most of them uh, killed themselves afterwards. I can only, yeah, I don't even want to imagine. Yeah, yeah that's terrible. Yeah, so no, this, so this is the world intense. he's going into. This is the go- Yeah, so he's um initially he's kind of. Not forced to go, but he's not exactly very enthusiastic as he later becomes, I think, during his yeah. first trip. So Fawcett's set up in the script yeah. as being an outsider from the upper levels of British society. And right. he's trying to find a way to to improve his station in life, to improve his rank. It's it's yeah. pre-World War One, strong belief in the importance of the class system and, yeah. and these honors and... World War One, which will make an appearance in this film. The, this film covers so much territory. It, it in, does, yeah. And historically, uh, yeah, people who maybe aren't too familiar with with the history of obviously World War One is one of the most catastrophic events mm-hmm. in human history in terms of lives lost, and uh, it was the first time that mechanized warfare really took its toll on right. soldiers in that way there had been a sense of glory in battle before then. And this is a world that Fawcett's living in up until 
that point, right. there's still this strong belief in honor and right. and doing your duty for king and country and all this stuff. And a lot of that gets shattered by World War One. Right. But that kind of made him an outlier because he still goes on doing these these last exploration missions into the early 1920s. Yeah. Which, you know, after this point, it, it kind of dies out. I mean, Indiana Jones is set in the 40s, I believe, because the Nazis right. make an appearance. 30s and 40s. That's kind of the thing. After that point, the idea of exploration, it kind of becomes redundant and men yeah. are going to the moon by the Yeah, the that's what I was going to say. It know? goes into space, space race. afterwards. Um, and exploring the bottom of the ocean as a, right. a certain director james cameron is known <laughs> is known for as well and then the relics in the it's sea just trying to find things off the land that we can explore yeah. because uh it's either the sky or the sea yeah but i mean there's still so much left to discover i was just reading about they found a lot of mayan sort of buildings recently in the last year i think it was back mm -hmm. in february like using technology it was buried there in the jungle yeah and it was you know huge and this is Fawcett's folly i know the the fact is he's well, he, he develops this theory of a civilization in the Amazon. But without the modern technology, but modern archaeologists go there and they can use radiocarbon dating. And just they can say if a structure or geographical location, if it happens to look man-made, they can radiocarbon date right. it and say, yeah, that, was, that wall was put up in the 1200s. Right. as something that happens in, in the book at, towards the end the reporter David Grant, he goes to where Fawcett had been mm. and he meets an archaeologist who is there, an, an anthropologist actually, I believe, who has been digging up things and, and yeah. trying to date them. And Fawcett mm. didn't have this technology. So his he had this theory, but he was maybe running into an impossible mission of his own creation because he how would he have proved it if he couldn't find any stone structure? Yeah, and people were very skeptical back then. Mm -hmm. And I think James Murray, when he comes into play, James Murray is a character that funds the uh, second trip, I, mm -hmm. I believe. And it only happens because his wife finds a letter from uh, Conquistador, I think, saying that he claims to have found the city, bridges and temples and, and all this stuff. And so he kind of uses that as like his proof. But even then, you only have another man's word for it. Uh, and so then, yeah, that's when they start going on that second adventure. And I believe he found it's like a, a statue or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, but going back to what you were saying, yeah, even if he didn't have all that stuff, even at that time, he's kind of ahead of his time. He wouldn't mm -hmm. have been given all that credit just yet. So Yeah, I think we'll come back to this then as a, when we get towards the closing comments and we'll go through the story. Right how it's built. Fawcett's this outlying character. He doesn't fit into British society. He yeah. wants to improve his station. And the real uh, Percy Fawcett, so just to give you a bit of background from, from his real life, he met Nina in uh, Ceylon, mm. a British colony at the time. And while he was there, he there was a gala for the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, mm -hmm. who was visiting. That's quite interesting that that happened because the death of Franz Ferdinand is what sets off World War One and right. you know yeah. ruins everyone's lives. Uh, <laughs> yes, about something like fourteen years after this, he fell in love with her, and while he was uh, stationed there, he also heard lots of rumors of hidden cities in the jungle, mm. and he 
I believe he was able to witness one. So what we would now consider an archaeological site, and to them it was a place of exploration, a place right. of adventure. Yes. So he saw, I believe, a temple of some kind while he was there in Ceylon, and something was uh, sparked in him, an interest in this stuff, because he was just yeah. serving as a soldier mm-hmm. until that point. Um, and then he moved back, I believe he was stationed in Ireland, yeah, And the book doesn't really talk about this bit, and that's why I think it's very interesting that the film chose to open there, because it's a film that claims to be based on this book. And his time in Ireland is just completely just uh, glossed over, like they just say that it happened, mm. essentially, and that's it. And the most of the key opening scenes are set at that time. Yeah, And I think that's really to write in a strong relationship between him and Nina, and have the birth of his his first son, who is going to be such an important uh, mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. But it's James Gray who who wrote it. He wants to set up this, I guess, this tension between within the family right from the very beginning. Yeah. And weirdly, from the book, I didn't get that sense. I got the sense that Nina was very dutiful as as a wife of mm-hmm. that time, and really encouraged him in doing all of this exploration. And the Jack absolutely adored him. Mm. And throughout the story, there's so much tension within the family. You know, maybe that's something that, that really did happen. And maybe they wanted yeah. to portray to the outside world that they were right. happier than they really were. We don't really know. Yeah. You Good know, story. you, you got to have conflict in a, in a film. And yeah. like the greater the conflict, <laughs> the more interest. I think yeah, they might have, yeah, taken liberties with it. But uh, I think as a general rule, I feel like everyone every couple or family appears a certain way but behind closed doors is not always happy you know so i think Mm -hmm. some of those situations i could see sort of yeah organically happening because of the situations but what i really enjoyed about uh nina his wife is that in the film she's like you said she champions him and yeah there's a little bit of tension especially uh when at one point she wants to join him and she feels she has the absolute right to do it um, and she doesn't she doesn't get to do it but um, nonetheless she's very supportive and they have this very free-spirited attributes to them like at, at a time when that wasn't really you yeah know. They're, they're both kind of outsiders and they're both yeah. ahead of their time in in many respects i think so and and he really looks at her as his equal yeah you know he's not uh misogynistic or you know, or anything like that, which is different from how I think most men well, were at the time. He's he's only misogynistic in the sense that he is realistic. The within the the time period as well. He's yeah. he's saying to her, "You you simply can't do come with me." Things like that. Yeah, which in yeah. his mind is realistic, right? And today might be considered oh, too of course. overbearing and controlling. But yeah, yeah. Today would be a completely different opinion. But back then, I think he was even also just coming from a worried perspective. You know, I don't think he wanted to put her in danger. I mean, he'd seen yeah. people throwing up black vomit, dying of yellow fever, malaria. Piranhas. He'd, he'd, seen, he'd seen some <laughs> terrible yeah. things. So yeah. he, yeah. So but then again, he was willing to take his own son there. So it's. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> He's five percent misogynistic. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, he. Um, I think that's what I really uh, enjoyed about her character. She wasn't just 
oh, I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom. Like, she really cared about these trips. She was invested in what he would find. So invested that she actually helped him get funding for that second trip. Like, she went and got that letter and... I, I think and she, she never lost faith in no, the no. the idea that he might return. Right, right. Which it's is one of the quite a sad things. story, really, yeah, and something they yeah. don't really focus on too much because, and we'll get there again later on. But that's a that's a very key part of this story, I believe. The fact that Nina kind of went on about her life and really suffered to support these explorations. Right. Because they cost so much the, to to do. It cost yeah. a lot of money. And the family really struggled. She had to take care of the, the children by herself pretty right. much the whole time. Yeah. Then that creates a more of a conflict later on in the film between Jack, his oldest son, and, and him. The fact that he kind of resents him. Mm-hmm. And, and we see when he comes back from that first trip, he doesn't really recognize him. Yeah. He even asks, exactly. are you my father? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that's got to be kind of tough to hear. I can imagine your own son like confused as to who you are, which really shows, I think, his commitment to it. Like he, you could tell he's he's a good dad and he wants to be with his children, but he cares more about the exploration, obviously, mm-hmm. but yeah. not because he's a bad father. It's just that's just kind of where his interests lie. But well, it becomes his obsession. But the first trip is essentially an assignment. Mm-hmm. He's already part of the army, so he doesn't really have a choice about this. Right. It's briefly mentioned that he spent some time in Morocco uh, as a spy. Very yeah. briefly mentioned. And this is something that links into the big mysteries around Fawcett later on in his life, the extent to which uh, he was a genuine explorer, or if he might have been spying as well. He definitely did have some some credentials from his time spying in Morocco, but... I don't think it really would explain anything about his his obsession with the the lost city or anything like that. It's just another another level of, right. of detail that people go into when they are apparently the people that really obsess over Fawcett go mm. very insane. <laughs> Damn, that's kind of, take that, it very seriously. That's like a bottomless pit, though, because yeah. you're never going to get that answer. No, there's there's no <laughs> answer. So yeah, most of us can just move on, but there yes. are some some obsessives out there oh no so he uh yeah he he kind of gets this assignment he's not Mm -hmm. too keen on it but right he does hear that it's either from goldie or kelty that uh essentially could be a way that he could improve his station in life and And i think yeah yeah he there's an uh the film alludes to his father Mm -hmm. his father his father did drinking and gambling yeah problem and that's something that he's very conscious of because whenever he's offered a drink, he very sternly says no. Mm-hmm. And he pours that the whiskey down the sink when he first encounters Costin, who ends up being like, you know, one of his really good friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can see how he, he's determined to turn that around, too. So that's another big factor, I think, motivating him uh, in the first few trips. It's to try to uh, do something better for his family. And I I found it really interesting when I was, because I read the script first and I thought it was such a good turn reading it because you're in the jungle for a little while and then all of a sudden there's like a village of sorts and there's like an opera and there's all these Mm -hmm. like, I found that really, really fascinating. Yeah, so that that is the next destination that we're whisked off to. Uh, Maybe I'll make a brief comment on on the island situation as well because that doesn't really 
address um it's not really addressed what was going on in ireland at the time but the british were essentially still in control of the entire island of ireland mm-hmm. and uh Fawcett had obviously ended up there as part of an army garrison mm. uh but the, they don't really show anything in in terms of repression or anything that was going on right then. but he's definitely by by anyone who knows what this this is meant to mean he's obviously part of this colonial oppression that's happening in right. Ireland and will by the end of well before Fawcett even goes missing Ireland will be independent of Britain mm. and so you know we're we're looking at the colonial situation in another part of the globe and then kind of transporting ourselves all the way across to to what's happening out in the in areas that are really lawless Mm. And Brazil, Bolivia at this time, there's, as we see in the jungle, there's this opera. It's meant to represent, I think, what was happening in Manaus at the time that they built this fantastic opera house. And it is kind of similar to what we saw in Oaxaca as well. Um, mm, yeah. The opera house uh, built in Early 1909 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very similar. These are mm-hmm. jungle areas. Oaxaca a bit less so, but you know, it's still <laughs> right. it's still quite tropical. They still have yeah. I think there's some similarities, things like that. Yeah. Probably not as intense as mm-hmm. the Amazon. I mean, there's just like I said, an abundance of all kinds of living things. But this was this this weird aspect of colonialism. It was just transporting, you know, a very French German style thing out into out into these tropical places and just planting it there and just assuming you could just put civilization down somewhere you could lift it up from (laughs) from its roots in europe and just pop it down over there and have the conviction that you have Mm -hmm. the right way to live yeah and that anything different than that is just you know savagery it's Mm -hmm. uh inferior and that the film i think brilliantly covers some of that without like beating you with the head too much Mm -hmm. about it i think there's like a nice balance of and that's why i really wanted to talk about this film because Mm -hmm. i think that this was a bit more subtle than people want to make it out to be nowadays i think people just made assumptions and even if you'd gone to harvard university you would have been taught a, a what we would consider a racist view of the world you would be taught that right certain races had more or less capacity than others and that was just considered a fact mm-hmm. that everyone believed. A lot of people didn't really obsess over it. It was just up in their heads the whole time. Yeah. Like that they were the civilized ones. Right. And the others were savages. I don't think they knew better. That was well, their... that's the thing. It's a lack of contact just as much as a, a lack of education. But yeah. force it by getting in contact with indigenous people, he starts to change his mind about all of these things that he's been taught to believe yeah i know he's much more open-minded and he even brings that up when he's back in mm-hmm. london i think it is and they're having a meeting and pretty much the the consensus is like yeah these guys are savages and it's ridiculous the idea of trying to be friends with them or whatever so i think he kind of stands up for it mm-hmm. you know even though he's he knows he's not going to be popular with those opinions which i think is what makes him a really interesting character is that at the time he was very very uh forward thinking and one of the things that i think the film doesn't touch upon that i saw in the script was that he was buddhist or he had a buddha yeah again that comes from his time in ceylon 
he converted to Buddhism. Right. His brother, I believe, was actually the first British person to convert to Buddhism openly. Oh, wow. Something like that. And he was heavily influenced by his brother. Interesting. Um, and, and this was, you know, it was such big news at the time that it was in the national newspapers wow. that, that a, a British officer had converted to Buddhism. <laughs> That's hilarious. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, it wouldn't, it would just wouldn't register nowadays. No, of course not. Someone changing their religion is right. completely normal. But yeah, uh, yeah. back then that was considered absolutely shocking. That's, that's, yeah. that's funny. That's strange. But and I mean, it makes sense. And in order yeah. to do that, it was just to take on this, this lifestyle that was very much uh, a lifestyle of nonviolence and mm -hmm. a wish to be more peaceful with nature and things like that. Yeah. And Fawcett, yeah, he renounced drinking. He he became a vegetarian. These were rules that I, I believe he was able to bend depending on the circumstances in the jungle because yeah. he did need to eat meat to survive. Oh, yeah. And his wish to be nonviolent, I think he he only wanted to use violence in self-defense. That became his yeah. compromise. Ideally, he would not use any violence, but... If the if there was no way of communicating with the Indians and they were going to kill him, right, that might have been what happened towards the end. He's a man with a lot of integrity. Yeah, you know he he has his moral code and he doesn't cheat himself. Mm -hmm. You know if something is not in alignment with what he believes to be right, he will do something about it. He mm -hmm. will speak up, and that's something I really appreciated from his yeah, character. Yeah, I, I do think I do. That's why I do think it's odd that the screenplay didn't start in Ceylon with him converting to Buddhism and meeting Nina there and instead kind of empty scenes at the beginning where which are set in Ireland and the we don't we don't really get that yeah he's hunting he's yeah. set up to be this man of action but I don't think it really gets into the depths of all those different things that were going on within this this real person right um, right he was definitely a very complicated person and very very unique in that sense i will agree with you on that i did yeah. feel the beginning opening sequence wasn't as engaging mm -hmm. and one thing that i was left wanting was like in the script it has like a very specific opening mm -hmm. of the clouds and like I, I don't know the way it was described and it, it referred to a painting then then i looked up or a painter I, watching those images i was like oh okay this is gonna look really cool and they didn't do that they started off with what i also like the the opening but they started off with you know, just a title, and I believe it was a statue next to it, like a sort of ancient ruin. It's it's some indigenous mm -hmm. people with some flames yes. and torches oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. around That's them. Right. Yeah. That's right. Which was kind of foreboding, and I also like that, yeah. that opening, but I kind of am curious to how that other one would have looked like because it would sounded really cool. But anyways... Uh, yes, it, I think, yeah, a little bit more depth in the yeah. beginning would so have been would have been nice. We saw this in our... Uh, episode on gladiator as well the the remnants left in the script of maximus maybe having being a christian and then they kind of just wrote that out and went oh, let's not let's not engage with the religious question here. yeah let's just move on from yeah and the same thing seems to have happened here they just kind of dropped the whole buddhist thing yeah they did and it's, it's kind of a disservice really. to to the character himself because it i think it's a nice easy way to explain why he acts the way he does yeah, that's true. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. But yes, you're right. But he he definitely held other people to such 
high expectations accordingly as well because he's like well if i'm not doing it this is the only way you're going to survive in this jungle mm-hmm. and the first thing that happens when he meets costin is he says you're drunk and if you want to come along with me essentially that whiskey's going down the drain yep. that, that was his rule yeah so that's probably what got him through a lot of these excursions because i think so i mean people used to drink a lot back then yeah and they they definitely didn't have the same conception of, oh, you'll get dehydrated. <laughs> you know, If you're in this Not tropical the heat, the best thing to be doing is to uh, be drinking water, is and, to be boiling yeah. and drinking water. Yeah. 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 No, he, I, I like that whole Buddhist touch. And, but even then, you know, I think the film and Charlie Hunnam did a, a good job at sort of portraying him as mm-hmm. a very righteous person. But, also not making him very self-righteous i think there's a fine line of yeah. someone who is trying to do the right thing and being self-righteous and I that's think the he, thing i think with these uh for lack of a better word these uh revisionist films we we kind of need to transplant more 21st century people back into the past so that we can relate to them because i think if you'd met a person like Fawcett, you would have just thought he was such a <laughs> over the top stereotype he would have been like come on lads come on <laughs> keep moving he would have just been so over the top very like, british yeah, so yeah that's interesting he must have been. yeah charlie hunnam definitely seeing pictures a, of him he's got his back is absolutely straight he's six foot something just yeah you know marching through the jungle and just slashing machetes <laughs> and just yeah walking into arrow fire i get the sense that in some way you had to just be slightly oblivious in order to and a I lot of british a lot of british comedy about the upper classes is like this we we kind of see them as the uh the the buffoons <laughs> and uh right but i i get the sense that they didn't want to make that association with the character so hunnam plays him a bit more seriously i think he than does maybe force it really was I think it was a bit more eccentric. That's interesting. That would have been a completely different film. Yeah. Because he is very serious. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't really line up too much in the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which, I mean, which is fine still. But yeah, you're right. I think it might have been, I don't know. Was there interviews at all with this man? Because I think think it's too, I don't think the, I mean, the radio was was around. But um, I don't don't think anything survives Mm. of, of him speaking. I think even people like George Orwell, who died in just after World War II, I, th- I think there was only like one recording of him speaking on the radio that mm. was ever that was ever found. So um, I think if Fawcett had spoken, there's no recordings of it. Gotcha. Yeah, and it was he went missing in 1925, I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he just kind of missed the the whole wave of information coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And th- and this is you know his downfall in a way because he is operating right. in a world, it's the pre-information world, yeah. and his yeah. his main uh, his main rival Henry Rice was the one who really took on the task. He was a millionaire from from New York, who basically was looking for Zed or something similar. Right. And Machu Picchu was found around this time yes. as well. Yeah. Uh, by another American, but Fawcett was the one who was very much anti technology Mm. but he was also very pro spirituality and Mm. occult ideas instead of using technology he trusted the extra senses that the force yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah well there you go that 
probably did hinder him a little bit at the very end of it's just a curiosity thing but they had followers by the end like people were following their we're going to follow their journey or mm-hmm. did follow yeah. their journey uh, but he says something around 40 million people mm-hmm. were follow. I don't know. Is that true? I was looking for that yeah, information. Yeah, so later on, uh, that's a lot in of order people. to fund the, the expedition that went missing, right. they sold the rights to reporting on it to a conglomerate of newspapers Yeah, that would then publish yeah. updates. So that was kind of what brought him reluctantly into the information age. He didn't really want to participate in this, but... Mm. It was the way to get the money. So I see. It's like being told, imagine you are a 50-something star today and your publicist tells you you need to get on Twitter. It's the same <laughs> kind of thing. It's like yeah. you, you might not want to do it, but right. you're being told by if you want the money, you're you're going to have to you're, you're going to have to sell out a yeah. little bit. Yeah. So I that think that's sense. kind of what happened there. Yeah. Right, right. And obviously Jack thinks it's it's all great fun. Yeah. Yeah, he he embraces that. In yeah. fact, Jack is the one that kind of gets it all going. But before we get to the end, so now we're he comes back. He finds some pots and other stuff from his first trip. So that gets him excited about the yeah. idea of this lost city. He's so, convinced that anywhere you look, you'll basically find pottery. That's that's basically what he says, right? And is what is now kind of being proven to be true in some way. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of his stuff is now being. Yeah, yeah, I was reading some of that stuff. It sucks when that happens when people aren't. <laughs> so, but this born was the, the one right thing. It, it's very hard to find a city, and this is why the opera is such an important symbol because that opera later on will kind of oh, be yeah. consumed by the jungle, and they think, well, if this could disappear in twenty years, then what hope are we of finding something from five hundred years ago? Yeah, but the pottery is what what stays. Yeah. And that's his first clue, and he finds this on on that first mission. Yes, and that's kind of what fuels his passion or his interest. Mm-hmm. And so he comes back again after James Murray, who is an an explorer. He's been to Antarctica, and he's done some... with Shackleton, a famous mm. polar explorer. Right, and so he joins him on this mission, and we think that oh wow, that's really cool. And uh, Murray at first is. We see him as a key ally yes. uh, for Forset. Yes. Because Murray seems to be one of the few people who really believes that this could be mm-hmm. real, that yeah. there could be a civilization. It's around the midpoint of the film mm-hmm. that they have this fantastic scene that's kind of like the Houses of Parliament. And that's the way it's described in, in the script. It, they say it's like the British House of Parliament. And it's just all these guys just shouting at each yeah, other yeah, yeah. and mocking yeah. each other and that was and a really, fun scene. really got to make a case and try and sell it to the entire society right and there's this guy william berkeley who just absolutely won't believe he's just he just wants to ridicule force yes. it and force it wants to yeah the young guy yeah that uh is played by um the guy who plays uh harry potter's nephew what's his name dudley Oh, really? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, he's skinny. Anyways, side note, <laughs> I, Dudley's, in the, Dudley's in the film. Anyways, yes, it's a really fun scene. And then that's when we're introduced to Murray. And he is, a, like you said, an ally at first. He's there, he mm. believes him, he's curious, and yeah, he's willing to fund the, the expedition. Mm-hmm. But he, he is Fawcett's social superior, and he right. is strongly of the belief that he should be in charge in 
yeah in most of these things and this is a this is another thing that's really fascinating about the age of exploration mm. just because you were good at going to the antarctic doesn't mean you're going to thrive in jungle conditions they're completely different completely literally the opposite of each other right the the opposite ends of the uh, extreme spectrum of temperature the opposite landscape yeah barren. full of uh and the jungle is just absolutely full of wildlife and animals that can kill you and even the river is inhabited by all these fish that's just going to rip you to shreds and the antarctic is is this endurance test of just somehow staying sane in just conditions of, that are so minimalist in in that sense it's just ice and and nothing in the horizon right, yeah. and the blizzards and, yes. and the frostbite. Yes. So it's a, that's a really interesting <clears throat> thing. So Murray really thought he could apply what he'd done. <laughs> yeah, he thinks Antarctic very highly to, of himself. Yeah, and he thinks, yeah. oh, I'm a great explorer as a result. But Fawcett, it seemed, had some sort of immunity to certain diseases. That's the only yeah. explanation because he didn't seem to get sick. Right. Everyone else around him. I think they were saying something like 80% of the people that went in to the Amazon at that time would get malaria. Damn. Those so are bad the, odds. Those are bad odds. Yeah. And Fawcett went numerous times and never once got malaria. I don't know. I think it might have been his uh, enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it was. Uh, but yes, he never the really mind got mind is very sick. powerful. In it these is. Things, but I don't That's know how true. powerful it is with with malaria <laughs> maybe it was his whole like uh ouija board spirituality yep. at work yeah. that was protecting him yeah uh but you're but yes uh he was very resilient he was a very resilient character physically and mentally i think and spiritually mm-hmm. and and then murray and him have begin to have problems there's tension and then finally murray you can tell murray's there's something odd about him right from the beginning I think. Yes, yes. I think he doesn't fully reveal his true nature. Even to himself, he doesn't really want to admit his true nature. And his yeah. true nature is he's very selfish. He's a bit of a coward. He doesn't own up to what he does. Mm-hmm. And he's obviously very resentful. Yeah, and, and a glory hunter of some kind. Yeah. Yes, yes. So he's... Uh, even when he's in the party at the beginning when he's introducing himself and he's kind of just like talking about his his achievements as if mm-hmm. he doesn't know that everyone there knows. You know what yeah, I mean? That's what uh, yes. I believe it is Fawcett who, who responds to that, right? And says, I think everyone right. here is, is quite aware of your achievements. <laughs> you Mr. don't need Murray. to say yeah, it out yeah. loud again. And he says yeah. it He says it kindly, but yeah, underneath does, yeah. that there's so <laughs> just a little jab kind of, in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For sure. Uh, so we do get a good sense of who this guy is and when he's not in the jungle, when he's in London or whatever, he does have, you know, that particular power, that influence and that stature. But once you're in the jungle and you take a strip that away, you just have who you really are as a person. And that's what ends up coming, emerging into the surface. And we begin to see that this man is just holding them back. He's fearful. He doesn't really want to listen to orders he's um he rejects the natives as well that could have helped him because i think his leg was infected or something Mm -hmm. ends up getting blood poisoning and i think he's just yeah your typical 
I guess, white man at the time that mm-hmm. thought himself so much superior to other races and to other people. And so, unfortunately, yeah, anyways. There's a very interesting part of the book. The book is written, essentially, David Grand, New Yorker writer. Mm-hmm. He, he wanted to write a book about Fawcett. And so the book kind of goes between his own journey in the the year it's written. I think it's around 2005. Okay. Uh, so his own journey, going to see what happened to Fawcett and his his uncovering of archives and talking to people from the family and things like that, and then telling other chapters as kind of a, a narrative history set in the time, the 1900s up to the ni- up to 1925, following Fawcett's journey. Right. And in I think one of the early chapters where he's he's talking about his own investigations he realizes oh Fawcett actually studied to become an explorer and so the Royal Geographical Society actually had essentially a class that it was teaching Mm. it was teaching aspiring young explorers how to be explorers and the reason I bring this up is because they essentially had this field guide that was telling them what to do in certain situations and uh, it had a lot of information on what to do if there was there was going to be a mutiny, mm. and basically on how to keep control of the the party. And it just said like you have to show confidence and and assert your orders like uh, under all circumstances. Right, right. And so this was the problem in in that particular expedition is that Murray wanted to be in charge, but mm. he. If he wanted to go on this expedition, he has to give himself over to the command. Mm. You can only have one person in charge. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's chaos. Mm -hmm. And that means everything. It means splitting up the food evenly. You don't get a special pass. You don't get to be slower. If the party has to move at a certain speed, you have to keep up. And Murray won't, won't do that. He wants everyone to adapt to him. Right. And Murray, like the real Murray, apparently threw away his hammock because he thought it was too heavy and then had to sleep on the ground, which in a place where there's killer everything, right. um, you wouldn't want to sleep on the ground. I mean, the the guy was just That's absolutely terrible. He just lost his temper out there and yeah. he threw away everything that wasn't of immediate use to him because he said it was weighing him down and then realized what a huge catastrophic mistake he'd made yeah he got extremely ill which is portrayed in the film yeah and i think the worst part the most arrogant part is is what happens with the the key scene where they're attacked by the indians Mm. murray won't engage with the right the culture that is there yeah he's only interested in the the old mindset of yeah we're explorers we're going to find this this lost city ignore all the people that live here that don't engage with them, and force it yeah engages with them yeah and that's how he gets these clues and and uh also learns survival techniques that will help him yeah he learns a lot from them and mm-hmm. i think when we're first introduced to this tribe uh we see a, a human body being sort of roasted for dinner yeah and i think we're with murray at this point you know, like, oh my God, they're cannibals and they're Of dangerous. course, it's shocking. At yeah. that point, I mean, um, as an audience member, you're on board, but it shifts when Percy, 
talks about why or the meaning behind it, which means that they believe that when they eat that person, part of their soul is going to be with them. So yeah. it has like a more, exactly. a less aggressive reason for it. He's he's engaged. He's simply had the conversation. Yeah. He's figured out what they're doing and not seen it as barbarism. But and just reacting. To, yeah. yeah, tried to yeah. understand it within the cultural framework right. within which they live. Mm-hmm. And that is what makes him such a remarkable figure so ahead of his time mm-hmm. yeah. because people weren't doing this in the 1900s the early 1900s it, it just wasn't happening people right. weren't saying oh we should engage with cultures within their own cultural framework right and Mur- we get the opposite side which is mm-hmm. murray and eventually this is when things change i think there's a big shift here and what happens and is, this has gone on since the conquistadors this yeah is what what they're saying <clears throat> simply that's yeah. what the spanish were doing too they were asking all these leading questions saying where is the gold man where where is the gold yeah where's this kingdom of gold supposedly out there where is el dorado right and that was what this was all about asking these questions and of course indians would tell them oh yeah it's over there <laughs> <laughs> like they would just keep telling yeah keep going you'll find it just keep going turn the corner to the left yeah because they asked leading questions <laughs> yeah and i think also uh the white man or the conquistadors or the people coming uh the indians have a really good description of them at one point in the film uh or in the script i'm not sure if it made it to the film where they say oh yeah those men's eyes are always seeking they're always they're mm. never still I think that, yeah that's something they're always searching uh, okay. they're never restful mm. uh, or something to that effect which kind of gives you the different types of mentality you know you yeah. have these tribes that they're they're good with what they have they're happy with their lot they're living off the land and there's a, a thing there and then you have these explorers who are never still they're just constantly seeking seeking and mm-hmm. they're not restful uh, so I think that mentality, I think uh, we see the extreme of that when they do start to like, you know, take over and get slaves and, and all mm-hmm. that stuff because they're not really fighting back in a way either. Uh, and they really can't. I mean, the technology, the big technological difference kind of gives uh, favor to the people coming over, unfortunately. The thing is, uh, some of those arrows do look pretty nasty. Well, yeah, yeah. There's no uh, denying there's, that. In hand-to-hand combat, uh, without the guns, the, the explorers are kind of on the same, <laughs> or even at a disadvantage, because right. they don't know the terrain, they don't know where they're going. They don't have guns? They do have guns. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, without the guns, oh, yeah, yeah. they are n- in no way superior in these conditions. They no. are actually at a huge disadvantage. Because <laughs> they also don't know the terrain as no, well. They don't know where they're going. That's they true. don't know what could be around each corner. Right. And yeah, an arrow is going to kill you. The yeah. Arrows were used for a very long time. <laughs> they look very painful for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Murray disappears during this whole sequence where they're getting to know the the natives and, you know, there's a conversation there. And there's a really beautiful moment between Percy and Henry. I believe that's his name. Costin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Henry Costin. And they're overlooking the land and it's a really nice moment because you really see what it means for percy to find this it means a lot to him and then that suddenly is taken away with murray and mm-hmm. you know he they find him and they found that he's eaten more than he should have and he doesn't really seem to care i mean you really get the sense that he feels slightly ashamed of it but 
we can see that in his mind he's justified you know well what he was hungry mm-hmm. <laughs> that was his answer yeah he he says something loud you would have me stop yeah something very dramatic to that effect and the truth is in in these expeditions yes that's the point you do have to stop if because everyone else is starving that's the whole point you don't get a special pass just for being you you're not allowed to be selfish right the whole group has to stick together <laughs> yes and, and that's what they can't get through to him they're getting shot at by arrows at one point after this. They're in the very shallow river. And he falls into the river and he begins to panic. And in his panic, he begins to try to row the boat. And mm-hmm. a lot of their supplies gets thrown into the river. They start yeah. losing stuff. And everyone knew what they were meant to do. If they ever fell overboard, they were meant to go to shore. Go to shore. And it yeah. wasn't even deep. So technically, yeah. he would not have drowned. No. So he was freaking out over nothing. Yeah. And, and cost them. It cost them like a third of their yeah. supply. So Percy, you know, was very uh, upset, obviously. And I think he made the right choice in sending him off to a place where he could finally get some shelter and hopefully get taken care of with his mm-hmm. uh, injury. Uh, he takes it as an offense. You know, he thinks of that he was abandoned or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so they have to go back after that, I believe. And the, this is kind of one of the things. There, there were definitely different rules for how you act in on these expeditions. Mm-hmm. There, there was no rule like, oh, if someone's sick, we all drop everything and we go and tend to them. There was just an expectation that yeah. if you if you couldn't make it, you could die. So he was just coming into conflict with, mm-hmm. with them mm-hmm. it, because they just couldn't see eye to eye. And presumably someone that's selfish would have let Others just <laughs> perish around him anyway. I, yeah, I think he true. only wanted special uh, treatment just for himself. It's yeah. not a good way to go down in history anyway. Um, no, it's not. He doesn't come across as as particularly a great person. No, there's a lot of flaws, and we get a sense of what happens to him much later in the film. So they go back, and I think this is when the war breaks out, I think. And he goes back, or is there another... Yeah, when Fawcett makes it back to Bolivia. Yeah. yeah. He finds out that the war's broken out. Right. There's a particular expedition that Fawcett did mm-hmm. that isn't covered in the film, probably because it wouldn't make such compelling viewing. But mm. just as a fact of life is absolutely insane. He went off by himself for three months on one expedition. Mm-hmm in trying to find the lost city. This was this was post-Murray, I believe, mm. that he just wandered off for three months solid. He decided to walk from Bahia, yes. which is completely on the other side of Brazil. And he did a... Th- this was based on the, uh, the Conquistador's letter that he'd found. Mm. Okay. And he, he went off wandering for three months by himself. Utterly insane. That's uh, that's the sort of uh, adventure it, spirit that I mean I admire so much, and mm-hmm. I wish I had a a little bit of that. It's uh, it's it's crazy because it does take a certain mentality to to go and do that by yourself. I was um, I knew this guy who was from Texas, and he went over to the Amazon, and he was only going to go for a few months. He ended up being there for three years, so he would go from village to village on a small boat. And he went by himself and there would be like weeks with him and just a boat and his hunting and, you know, went completely 
completely primitive in the sense of no technology, nothing like that. He would only like, because he kept an online journal. Um, so he would go to like a cafe here and there every couple months and just update. So this was brought to my attention a few years ago by, because he was friends, online friends with one of my friends from Canada who I went to film school with. So he proposed that we hitchhike down to Brazil and make a documentary about this guy. So we ended up getting in touch with him and we were like ready to go. It was like going to happen. Unfortunately, the funding didn't come through and we didn't get to go. Uh, but that would have been fascinating because we were actually going to spend time with him mm. at, on the Amazon on his boat for, I think we were going to do like a month or two. That would have been him. interesting how you would have handled it. Yeah, I don't think I would have. <laughs> have you, have you been back, to the jungle before? Not like that, no. Uh, no, I mean, I would like to think that I would have been okay but looking back i'm like at, at that time i don't know if i would have been ready see i've mentally i've been right. in the jungle for three days and that's enough for me <laughs> um, <laughs> which jungle did you in go to? in colombia in okay. uh, near santa marta in okay the, so near the caribbean gotcha. so i i don't think it compares to the amazon within 30 minutes less than that 15 minutes of starting to trek was just absolutely drenched in sweat <laughs> just sweating oh my god yeah that and you just need to keep drinking water right so hot it's harsh it's a very harsh environment it was, it was a really fascinating experience yeah. because we did cross territory that was inhabited by indigenous people oh cool as well so we were walking along and then suddenly you just see an indigenous person just walking through the jungle the other way to you along the same trail Oh, that's amazing. You can't even say hello because they don't speak Spanish or anything. <laughs> right, right, right. That's but amazing. It was, it was very it was very wild. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. Well, we just trekked through to get to a beach, camped on the beach for two days, and then trekked back. So Got it. Something like a three-hour, four-hour trek each way. Mm. Something like that. I mean, mm. I couldn't imagine doing what Fawcett did. No. Just. No. That's. I mean, that's like I said, it, it requires a certain characteristic you know, mm -hmm. a certain amount of passion for what you want to do. And this this guy that I'm talking to you about, about how we're going to do the documentary, he ended up falling in love and came back to Texas and married this girl. But he was, a, he was out there for a good three or four years and he always wanted to go back and he never, he never got a chance to. He died uh, a couple years ago in a, he, he flies planes, he used to fly planes and um, yeah, it crashed. It was crazy because there was a video that recorded the entire thing. It was a small plane and they were actually putting on a show for the entire family. So he died in front of his entire family watching this plane just crash completely. He was, you know, just very passionate about life and just wanted... He's a kindred spirit with Fawcett yeah. in some sense. I th he reminds me of him. Yeah. Um, I only got a chance to talk to him a few times, but the sense was like, he just didn't buy into society. And I think mm -hmm. that's something Fawcett does too. He can see right through certain customs. He can see right through certain mind structures that don't work for him. Yeah. And, and so the, I think this really gets to the heart of the, the Fawcett character and this relationship, his, his relationship with Nina. Mm -hmm. They're both people who see through the trappings of society. They, yeah. they still want to improve their lot in life. They don't want to be poor. No, but they <laughs> right. They also don't want to suck up to power unless it's genuine, and that makes them heroes as opposed to anti-heroes. In in this sense, you know, they they are 
genuine if if Fawcett want, is going to become famous and he's going to make this big discovery it has to be real it has to be authentic yeah yeah and Nina wants to be a part of that and uh it it is a very important part of the film i think is maybe the key part of the film is that conversation they have before he goes on the second expedition mm. and she wants to go along mm. and it's right in the middle of the screenplay maybe not perfectly in terms of the the timing i think it's slightly into the first half yeah but but it's it's the middle point in the sense that i think it it's where the screenplay really focuses on what it's all about what is this this relationship about for them how are they going to achieve their dreams and mm. it's one of those things about having this this long this marriage and all of the sacrifices she has to make just for him just for his ambition and it it is this sense of well it's worth it for this it's it's not him staying in in Ireland and just trying to rise through the ranks of the army while oppressing the Irish or something like that she she senses that there's something really important at stake and she really believes in it as well yeah she really loved him and i think she was like i said a very strong character mm -hmm. and uh which also kind of goes down to her kids too i think jack yeah. shows a lot of that as well mm. uh, and he's raised by his mother really that's yes. it and yeah we, so we have brian is introduced the kids are not historically very accurate i get the sense that jack really from the book at least that jack really admired his father he had a best friend called Raleigh who went on the expedition with them um, yeah, and went missing. That's one thing they changed in the film and too. So that was dropped, and I think that was done in the in the name of increasing the drama, centering the yeah. attention on the father son dynamic. Yeah, and and contrasting that with the husband wife dynamic. Mm. But Brian, when they went missing, was working for the railway that was being set up in peru i think so mm. you know brian was an adult as well and jack was quite a bit older than than the film made him out to be the film he's got this like little flimsy little mustache yes, growing, growing yes. under his nose and like he he barely looks a day over 18 yes and the, i think they try to heighten the, the the innocence of this 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 kid who's just yeah taken into the jungle by his father and following this dream that's going to get them killed so that that's a screenplay choice that's done to heighten the effect, but I think in a way it does a bit of a disservice because Jack uh, Fawcett had a decent life up until that point. Uh, they even lived in Los Angeles. Mm. They lived in. I think the screenplay briefly mentions it and th that they've been to other places. Yeah, yeah. that they've been in Jamaica and uh, America. But again, it's just something that they just pass over and uh, it's just one of those things that if they maybe if they'd focused on the family drama a bit more, there could have been some interesting stuff there, but apparently Jack and Raleigh used to hang around Hollywood studios trying to get a role. So Yeah, he wanted to be an actor. Yeah, his life could yeah. have been completely different if, <laughs> if yeah. he just got a <laughs> If he had just not gone on that thing, but yeah. but their relationship changes. Mm -hmm. They start off like you say. Jack is a uh, he. I think understandably so feels absolutely abandoned. Yeah, and 
he's acting like a child because he is a child. Right. He's he's acting in the way that children do uh, when they when they feel abandoned. He's trying to to get his his father to realize the hurt that that he's causing the the family. Right. And it's a different time, and you're he was is a time when kids got hit if they spoke out. Oh yeah, there's that very powerful scene where he tells him a whole bunch of mm-hmm. stuff and he gets slapped. And that I think hard. that really goes back into our our 21st century perception of the cuz these are only our yeah, our great grandparents generation. This is something sure. that like I said with with the colonialism stuff, we're still engaging and trying to figure out how we're going to move forward from this how we're going to relate to this past. And, and within British society, there's still this question of maybe your grandparents and great-grandparents had a lot of problems and they passed them down to your parents' generation. And it was because they were brought up in a very physically abusive society. Yeah, You were absolutely allowed to <clears throat> beat kids at home and at school. I think uh, even within my own family, that's exactly right. My parents definitely got beat by their parents my grandparents beat them yeah. pretty pretty often not my mom she apparently was a very good kid uh but my dad for sure i mean i got i got definite you know spankings and hit with the belt and a uh what do you call it chunkla which but is there's a, a difference between <laughs> there's also a difference between misbehaving and telling your father you're abandoning us and look at the hurt you're causing to this family and then getting just knocked down. Yeah, he absolutely. That was knocks a very him to the floor. That was yeah. a very part. I wonder how many takes they did if that was real. It's done really well because it really hits you. Like it, yeah. it's more shocking than some of the violence you'll see in the jungle. It's yeah, one of those, those moments it really hits you. So like you're seeing someone striking a child and. It, it tells you something about where we are now as a society because yeah. it immediately shocks us. Yeah. And that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think it also shows us a little bit about Percy, the character in the film. Yeah. And one of the best uh, descriptions of him was in the beginning of the script when he, the writer's describing him as, you know, collected, but there's like a, there's a darkness in there mm-hmm. in his eyes. There's yeah. like a, a rage, but... It says it's even more dangerous because it's kept on a leash. And I love that line because it kind of gives you a yep. deep sense of what that means. And I think we get a little bit of that in that scene when he slaps him. Mm-hmm. A little of that comes out. Um, yeah, and and the leash, this is where we wonder, well, who was the real uh, Percy Fawcett? Mm. Maybe to some extent that that whole Buddhism, that... that, uh, that idealized life peaceful life maybe that was kind of a way of trying to restrain those those right. elements within himself right maybe that was the tool that he found was effective yeah. on how to handle his own demons mm-hmm. i think that's definitely a possibility and to because like he's very forward thinking but at the same time he's in this society that's not so i think a lot of that you know anger must come from a place of you know you're kind of alone in your way of thinking. I mean, mm-hmm. good thing he has his wife, but... Yeah, I they don't have a, a map for... But they, they might be, you know, let's say... Let's say they're like 1950s parents, really. So they're, let's say they're 50 years ahead of their time or something like that. Because okay. then they're, they're probably not 21st century parents. They're not 1970s parents or anything, but they're, they're definitely different, it seems, mm-hmm. to to those pre World War One generation in general. Yeah, obviously they don't have like a map for 
how to be. They have that tender conversation, and they, Nina says to him, "You know, don't we believe in the equality between us?" And, right. And yeah, he yeah. says, "But yes, in in mind, but not in body." He's still restrained by by society in some way, in in being able to envision <laughs> what will later be something that's now kind of taken for granted. It's equal. It's just equality. It's mm. not. We don't. <laughs> we don't have this footnote saying no no equality in <laughs> in mind but not in body that right. that's not something that <laughs> and that's an argument i still yeah. hear well it's actually. it's definitely an argument you hear in sports still and things yeah. like that but um yeah, yeah that's still something i think that's kind of in the the culture war uh, yes at the moment it's still in dispute and i mean there's there's different ways to look about it but yeah maybe we shouldn't mm. get into that exactly no it's we're just looking at these characters i yeah, suppose yeah. and and as I say, it's a revisionist yeah. kind of history. So it's interesting when this stuff is put in. Are we idealizing the early 1900s and believing that every woman was a secret suffragette, or <laughs> or right. not? You know, like, right. and this is something that, with historical fiction, writers have to be really careful. Are you making characters who are authentic for their time, or are you trying to right make? I mean, if you are trying to make a modern audience learn something about their own culture and see why certain decisions have been made, then that's something else. And I think that scene where he strikes his son, that's a key scene like that. It it shows you why we think differently now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right. I think there's a fine line also as to how far you're going to go away from the actual truth mm-hmm. because... The 1900s, that's not too long ago where you don't have enough facts to to know who this person was. Mm -hmm. So I think we've mentioned before, if you're doing a movie about a gladiator, there's way more liberty with that. When it comes to actual people, you know, within the last 200, 100 years, you have all this information. I think, I don't know. I think uh, if I were to do a film about someone that actually was alive, I would do everything within my power to try to stay as accurate as possible. Hmm. Just out of respect, I think. And yeah, I mean, this film definitely addresses things that are that are happening. So yeah. it doesn't stray too far. I no, th- I think this revolution in the mind of what other cultures are, and not thinking of them as races condemned to acting a certain way because it's built into their genetic programming mm. or something like that. Mm. This revolution is going on in the minds of especially right. Fawcett and other people in the the Royal Geographical Society and, and by extension, this culture at large. It's like once you start communicating and seeing, they have the, all this knowledge. This is the thing that, that blows th- their minds when they're actually staying with the indigenous mm. people. They have so much knowledge about, about this place. For us, it's what they call the green desert. The, the, oh, yeah. It's like there's no food anywhere. And yet, for the people that live there and have learned how to... They are actually manipulating that environment in a very intelligent way. Yeah, and I think one of the best scenes in the film is when the natives drop something into the water, some sort mm-hmm. of uh, ingredients and... Yeah, so all a the poison fish, of some kind, yeah. And just, this fish float, you know... Yeah. And they only get exactly what they need. And then it doesn't kill the others. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just temporarily... Stuns them. Stuns yeah. them to 
for and them to float out the fish and, they want to eat. I mean, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's really brilliant. And I'm sure it must have taken generations for them to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just shows and there's knowledge that would be lost. And right. Oh yeah. If if some huge disaster happens, mm-hmm. then that knowledge is lost. And this is what this this story is all about. It, it, if if there is a lost city of Zed, which we now consider the civilizations that were in the Amazon before the arrival of Columbus and the Spanish to to the Americas, they had all this knowledge and all of this culture that will get lost as a result of the conquest and yeah. suppression of yeah. what the Spanish were con- and the Portuguese are considering indigenous beliefs as opposed to kind of knowledge systems that are tied up with uh, religious and mythical ideas at the same time. So a lot of the understanding of how to live with what is essentially a really brutal <laughs> environment, but to be able to thrive in that environment, mm-hmm. it's such a shame that so much of that knowledge was lost. And as the rainforest gets cut down, and there's something that's going on right now, yeah, we don't know what plants are being destroyed, what medicinal properties some of those plants could have. We yeah. have no idea because yeah. it's just getting chopped down it's just that whole taker mentality you know yeah. you just take 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 um unfortunately yes but i i do believe like now there is um more of a conscious with exploring than mm-hmm. there was back then yeah at least i'd like to think so a, there's a very funny uh part of the book where david gran is basically getting himself set up for his his expedition and he goes mm-hmm. to one of those camping shops in in New mm. York City, and obviously they're offering him every single thing. Like all of this stuff would have been like going to, uh, you know, in James Bond where they have—is it Q? Is that yeah. the name of the who guy? Who you know, with all the, the gadgets. gadgets. Yeah, 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 it's 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 just like that. It's like yeah. it's like going <laughs> to James Bond and going to Q's lab, and that's that's essentially it's like, oh yeah, the, here's this thing with a GPS, and then they've got these water purifier bottles. Now you can just literally just scoop up. Dirty, yeah, it's pretty dirty cool. Dirty water, and it will just purify it. And there's just a million different things: so you, mosquito repellents, blah blah, malaria tablets, blah blah blah. All of this death and suffering that could have been avoided with, yeah, I know, what will soon be very cheap technology that yeah. anyone can just go wandering off into the Amazon nowadays. I think. I mean, now that you mention all of that, I would feel more confident now going into the Amazon. Yeah. And then just being there, would you want to? <laughs> that really, like, I don't know, like, I, I would want to so badly, but I'm just so scared as to, like, how it would actually be. Because in theory, I'd be excited for it. But being there, I know it's going to be an entirely different reality because I've never come close to an experience like that. But it's definitely intriguing. We'll Definitely. have to do an online thing. If uh, enough people vote for it, you have to go or something. <laughs> oh, like force us to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why not? Maybe in the future you can make that happen. All right. Well, let's uh, let's consider the last part of the film then. Yes. Um, and I do want to mention yeah. something uh, as we're getting there. Uh, I haven't mentioned the cinematography, which is stunning. The Superb. lighting yeah. in this film is magnificent. The composition a lot of beautiful shots. Yeah, we we tend to focus on story yes. in in this podcast and sometimes we can miss uh the joy of 
actually just the watching of of it. Yeah, the technical and Again, the it's, artistic. Um, I'm a big fan of exploration movies, especially ones that engage with these kind of questions. Mm. There's Aguirre, which is a beautiful Werner Herzog film, 1970s one, about a conquistador searching for El Dorado. Mm. And then, um, obviously, Apocalypse Now, which is one of my oh, absolute yeah. favorite films of all time. Yep. And this is definitely in that vein of man and the jungle and also just, yeah, the the sense of behind the danger that's surrounding the boats going down the river, there's there's a genuine culture out there that is going to be shocking to the to the mm. protagonist, but it's also going to teach them a lot of stuff. Yeah. And there it's it's something really fascinating. I really love when films do this and I think it's it's really important in the in what is now this globalizing world where Indigenous villages nowadays have televisions in them. Like mm. the, this is right. something that's transforming every aspect of society. Right. Sorry, I don't mean every single one in in the Amazon, but certain ones in the Amazon now. Yeah. You know, this is a normal thing. Yeah. TV, but you might go hunting for or fishing in the river, but yeah. you also have electricity, and it's it's obviously revolutionizing indigenous life. Yes. And turning it into something new. So there's there's a real question to be asked about well what does this mean? What 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 was this encounter in the first place? What Forsyth was looking at, it it wasn't the same as by any means as a pre Columbian life, but it was it's definitely something a lot closer to the indigenous traditions that had been mm. there before than maybe you would have seen in the United States in the same time. Mm, that's interesting. So it's, it's it's really fascinating. And that's what his search for the lost city is all about, really. is. So the, the big reveal as part of the book and kind of the end of the film is to say, well, Fawcett was right to say there was a civilization. It wasn't this great big city. It definitely wasn't El Dorado, but there was a civilization in the Amazon. Yeah. And the fascinating theory about it is that the reason it disappeared is simply because when Europeans came to the Americas, there was what we call the Colombian exchange is an exchange of goods, mm-hmm. food, mm-hmm. and people all around the Atlantic. But what it also brought was disease. Right. And those diseases wiped out possibly 90% of the population of the Americas. Right. So the civilization that was in the Amazon potentially disappeared simply because disease went steaming ahead of where the conquistadores were. Mm. It just went spreading like wildfire through the entire continent so that when the Spanish actually met the indigenous cultures in that region, they were already down to something like 10% of their original population numbers. Right. right. Which means a loss of their civilization. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so that that might be the answer that was missing because people just assumed, well, if we can't find it, then it never happened. Right. But right. with that level of lives lost, it's completely possible that again, like you said uh, about the Maya they're finding 
the last hundred years have been about finding uh, Mesoamerican sites. Mm-hmm. Saw some incredible mm-hmm. ones in Oaxaca, like Montalban. Machu Picchu was found around this time, so the Inca civilization was kind of rediscovered. Yeah. But this Amazon one, very hard to prove because yeah. the jungle would literally just... If, if the buildings were not made out of stone, the jungle just ate all that back up. Yeah, I mean, just by default, just the mm-hmm. environment itself, one can understand why there's yeah. less of it. Not just uh, why it would kind of rot away because of all the you know, intense sort of things going around there, the weather, you have the animals, and also the fact that not a lot of people would venture. Mm-hmm. Into, I mean, it's easier to venture into somewhere in like, Oaxaca or Mexico than to venture into the Amazon where, yeah. you know, there's known to be a lot of deaths. And a that's lot why it was unmapped injuries. when they sent force it there. Yeah. It's completely unmapped. I mean, it's like it's, it. it's yeah. a completely different new world. And I think there's still much more to be discovered there. Yeah. I think there's... Well, they're finding road networks, evidence of bridges, evidence mm. of crop cultivation. Yeah. And this is all with modern technology that right. force it wouldn't have had access to. Right. But there's also potentially sites buried as well that people can't get into at the moment. And probably for good reason as well, there's also this question of, well, what would that do if if they did find some sort of city there or something like that? I mean, it would would obviously transform the region if they were to excavate it and everything. So, and Mm. there's all this, all these questions of indigenous land and who owns the land and who owns the natural resources and mm. obviously it's very important for us to to maintain traditional ways of life i as, think so, as yeah. much as we can i think uh, they can coexist just, but you have to be just you know in communication with mm-hmm. the other the yeah. other team yeah it's got to be a mutual thing but yes so the the last part of the film uh, which is um well the war we haven't even talked about the war scene right right, right. so that's before the war scene is brilliant. Um, uh, yeah, that was, I it was seems very... really out of place at first, right? Until you realize what it's saying, and the the whole key message of the war scene is how can we be sorry? How can we call them savages, right? If we're willing to, I love that line. Gas yep. each other and machine gun each other, exactly. In yeah, the hundreds of thousands. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that line, and I loved it when I read it in the script. And again, it, it's uh, the cinematography there was mm-hmm. amazing. I think the director really took care of the story. It, it's mm-hmm. a director who didn't have a lot of films under his belt before this. And he spent about six years, I think, working on this film. So you can tell because he's every transition, every shot, I feel like a lot of care went into it. I'm mm-hmm. sure like when he was shooting this war scene... He cared about it just as much as the scenes in the jungle. And mm-hmm. I could tell just by like the, the editing and everything. And very gruesome. And it really kind of... Claustrophobic. Eerie. Yeah. Um, really makes you feel for the men that, that had to experience that. Yeah. Even after seeing a lot of war films at this point, I was still very much um, impressed and kind of struck by the, the um, imagery of it. I yeah. think they did a really good a very, job with that. It's a very cool take, I think, mm-hmm. on on the whole concept. Uh, I, they didn't. I don't think they in the film they don't make it the Somme, and Fawcett was at the Battle of the Somme, and he he did get gassed later on. I believe, maybe even the following year. Oh yeah. I think this film is, takes a lot of liberties with the timeline, so there's no 
need to dissect all of it, but they they just wanted to create a a, a quick scene that basically summarizes the brutality of the war. Yeah, the invention of uh, gas, which will be one of the worst legacies of World War One, and the hard, one of the hardest ones for people to to continue their old belief in in the continual progress of civilization. Mm. Very mm. hard to continue that belief after after seeing what was happening and people yeah. basically just uh, vomiting and suffocating to death as a result of this this gas. Right. Which was just so badly planned as well because if the wind changed direction, it went back to the people that <laughs> yeah. and, and gassed their own. Exactly. Own yeah. Uh, they show the invention of the flamethrower. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, it, it definitely adds this contrast as well to the native warfare and bows and arrows and things like that and i don't think it idealizes it it still shows it to be quite brutal but yeah uh, you know it's 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 showing just how different two different points on the globe really were at this time absolutely stark difference and i think um just by observing it organically coming from the story like you said i don't think they they really try to make it a point like look at them and look at us it's subtly done in a very profound way that you got it mm-hmm. you know and then you go back to comparing so when he he gets injured and he almost loses his eyesight i think he mm-hmm. gets uh, blinded for a little bit there and i think this is when uh the relationship between him and his son begins really mm-hmm. in the film or it begins to be explored more deeply and i think it's downplayed a little bit compared to the script I feel like the script had a couple extra exchanges that really solidify their relationship, which I kind of wish it would have kept in the film. But they still touch it, nonetheless. It's still there. And I think one of the, the key scenes is the scene that is still there where where Jack basically tells him, you're still interested in you know the city of Zed. And he pretty much says, that, let's go, let's do it. But there is a first half of that scene that didn't make it to the screen. And it basically says... He apologizes for for what he said before, uh, for disrespecting him, and pretty much we realize that he's been reading about him now, mm-hmm. and he's in a way maybe before he wasn't really all that interested in his um uh what he was finding. I think he was more uh consumed by his resentment towards him that he didn't really want to take a look at what he was actually achieving and trying to discover. So at that point he. He tells him, like, you know, I actually respect you. So I think that's a moment of respect. He finally respects his father. Again, that little part wasn't really there in the film. But we do get that sense that, you know, he's trying to reconcile and he wants to follow in his footsteps and he wants to go. Hmm. And uh, and again, we get that family dynamic when he says Percy's pretty much on board. Yeah, let's do it. But we got to ask mom. And they ask mom and she is surprisingly very... um supportive yeah. again she she cares about and that relates this. back to the real nina and yeah also the real jack in in some ways at least the way he's portrayed in the book mm-hmm. jack completely idolized his father and he uh really dreamed of going on a trip with him to mm. to the amazon and nina obviously would have supported it it was it was their family's work it was what they were most proud of yeah, and uh, there's that line where she tells Jack, "You've used my own words against me." Mm-hmm. You know, so it's in her, it's in the spirit of the family for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's a family thing, and yeah, they're, they're 
they're on the path to create this legacy, mm-hmm. and it's obviously going to. This is a, this is a very difficult bit of source material for a screenwriter, really, because you can't have a triumphant ending. Right. And yeah, I mean, what do you think of the ending? Um, I liked it. I liked how obviously the scenes in with them and the Indians, every, anything post the final trip, uh, who knows? That might not be true. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably a combination of different theories. It's it's highly suspected that they were murdered. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that seems to be the only the reasonable s- explanation. The scene totally implies that, yeah. you know. But you never know. I mean, who knows? Maybe he... Uh, yeah, the film is quite careful actually to not have them killed on camera or anything. Right. So there's kind of this this acknowledgement suggestion that they're in some way spiritually still in the Amazon. I think that's kind of the idea. If they're alive or not, if they choose to stay there, yeah. if they're killed, the the chiefs do say they're going to, to, to get rid kill of them. them. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. But it's still not entirely it's very ambiguous. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a sense of ambiguity that I really enjoyed because that really plays on your own sort of curious imagination as to like, well, what did happen to them? What could have happened to them? And who knows for real, you know, what could have, I mean, it might've been as simple as they were walking down the road and like they got eaten by a panther. Who knows? Mm-hmm. That might've been it. You know, it might've not have been something so dramatic that they got captured or whatever. For good reason, the theory is that and it's kind of what Fawcett was trying to put forward as a, a theory for why the tribes were so warlike in that region that mm. they were just fed up with encroachment by outsiders. Yeah, and yeah. And the fact that people had been taken as slaves to work in rubber farms and things like just horrible conditions. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the the natural thing you would do, it, it's a it's actually a civilized response in that sense. It's to to protect your borders and and simply fight and protect the the people who are around you and yeah. that you care about like that seems to be where this idea came from is that mm. the certain tribes became more warlike than other the further into the interior you went essentially the more warlike they were because they were having to do that to preserve the integrity of their their yes. culture yes and there's that theory where you know, some elders were talked to and they, who knows if this is true, but they claim to have sent him a certain direction where there might be a ruins or whatever, but warning them that, you know, there's much more violent tribes mm-hmm. in the wilderness and that could be exactly what might have happened. Um, but again, I, I'm glad that the natives were a part of that ending. There, It's still in the mix, that theme. Mm-hmm. And that whole sort of um, meditation on what that means, like you say, like coming to a new land and seeing other civilizations and all that stuff. And and having um, to form some sort of joint responsibility and right. joint culture that will emerge out of this in some way. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I thought the ending was really, really nice. I thought the, the camera work, the way they edited it, because I especially loved the ending. You know, so we have that whole scene where they're being taken away and we're kind of left with, okay, well, what So the happens? ending, yeah, the end, the very end, which is yes. Nina going to the Royal Geographical Society. She's got, right. she's, be, she's been visited by someone who claims to have seen Percy. Yeah. And 
the reason she is willing to believe him is because they have the compass. Right. So this is based on something that really happened. There's also a theory that the compass was left behind at one of the earlier camps and had been traded for something. Mm. So Percy had given it away before he died. That's Mm. one theory. But many people claimed, a surprising number of people claimed to have uh, seen him after his supposed death. And it all ties into this mystery. And I I think that's... Yeah, that's interesting. It would be very hard for the film to address all of this stuff because it covers so much. And like I said, there's a lot. The film is mainly about colonialism at its heart. That's kind of the key theme of the film. But it could also be a film about a family that just being ripped in two by the father and the oldest son disappearing. Yeah. And they Nina waited years up until the day she died. She yeah. thought he was going to come back. Yeah, she never really seemed to lose hope. And yeah. there's that, that last scene with her is very... Um, very intense emotionally for I mean you can tell how distraught she is even though mm-hmm. she's holding on to that hope you can tell there's a lot of still yeah fear and doubt and the fact she and walks out into a jungle that's which is was, reflected yeah that's it's what I wanted to talk about yeah. I love that last shot um, because very symbolic very symbolic where her mind is clearly yes I thought it was a very creative very beautifully um, executed shot at the end there where she walks into the jungle because that's where she wants to be. That's where she always wanted to go and never got a chance to. And that's a sense that in some way said is in the mind in some mm. way uh, that it's this. This is another of the, the theories about Fawcett is that mm. Zed was in some way not physical. It was some sort of spiritual place he was believing in as well Mm. that seemed to exist out there so there's there's kind of this sense though but i mean the key point is that she's going to spend the rest of her life in this mental world thinking about him right yeah yeah. interestingly brian his second son his story is a bit more similar to the jack portrayed in the film that he he felt very scorned because his father doted on jack and Loved him a lot more, presumably, or at mm. least that's the way Brian perceived it, and took Jack with him, didn't think Brian would, would have been okay in the jungle, all this stuff. And it was actually after they went missing, maybe five or so years afterwards, something like that, that he started to investigate his father's... I think it was even, maybe even much later than that. I think it was right before the mother died. He wrote a book called Exploration Forset and rearranged his father's notes and wrote everything out. And had, I think he tried to do a couple of expeditions to go and there were, I think a hundred people died trying to find Forset in the end. Brian wasn't one of them, mm. but he did go to try and find him. And it, he did have this kind of thing similar to Jack in the film, this this turning, this change of mind in later in life, thinking the way I perceived my father when I was growing up was one way and now that I'm older I start to investigate the stuff yeah very very interesting what happened there yeah that is interesting and especially that it took him so long to finally get to it I mean if you were much concerned well that's the thing he felt so betrayed at right right, right, right. Or, or like he wasn't a part of it I guess very interesting. But this film could have also been about, well, what are those tragedies like for families? So, mm-hmm. and, I mean, it just alludes to it only a little bit at the end. Yeah. And it would be hard to fit all this in. Yeah. But it's 
I think it's a real takeaway from from the book in the way in a way is the yeah just the pain for what it must be like to not really say goodbye to anyone yeah you know they're going off on this mission and then never having that closure never knowing what happened and always being told oh there's another expedition going out to find them find them and rescue them they'll be back this time you know the years and years and years that must have been so going on yeah i mean yeah the uncertainty of it all i think that's like the killer the killer thing for that must have been for her and, and her her kids because uh, he did leave two behind. Apparently, Fawcett was so worried that someone else would beat him to yeah. the Lost City that he wrote down fake coordinates. And maybe people died looking for him because they were using the fake coordinates he'd he'd left as a way to trick his enemies because he thought he was going to get there first. Oh, wow. But he, obviously, he wasn't counting on dying. So people followed the fake coordinates trying to save him yeah. and then disappeared themselves. So yeah. Damn. it's it's that's that's awful. <laughs> also, just like he was so confident that he wasn't going to die, that he was going to be yeah. so successful. I mean, that's we'd done it so many times. He was 52 when he went missing. Damn. That's funny that Charlie Hunnam supposed to be 52 towards the end there. Yeah. He with looks a bit of makeup nothing on, like right? that. <laughs> He looks nothing like 52. No, that's... Um, he barely looks old enough not, to be Tom Holland's dad, but... Yeah, he he know. didn't look old enough, unfortunately. But that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you still buy into the story. I thought the scene... That was, that was one of the very few weak points in all of that. Good, yeah. Exceptional photography throughout. Oh, my God, so great. One <laughs> of my favorite ones is uh, when they're leaving towards the end and they're taking that train and they're leaving the station and the there's, like, intercutting between the train station and back home, like his wife and kids on the bed Mm -hmm. and the way they match the camera movements with the movements of the train. Like, it's just beautiful. Like it's beautifully put together. Mm -hmm. Like I said, transitions in films are very important. And I think you took extra care to make sure that the pacing was there because it's a very specific pace too. Like it doesn't go really, really fast. It's very contemplative in a way. Mm -hmm. Like it actually takes its time. And I like that about it. It absorbs you. It, it, yeah, it gives you time to ponder the questions. And exactly, that's a very important thing, and that's something that's so hard to write. I think, yeah, uh, the producers to be on board with that idea, right? Like, no, we we need lots of time where there's no action. We yeah. we need this to happen, <laughs> yes. otherwise people won't be able to consider what this film is about, right? So that that's something that was really really a key part of this film. Yeah. No, I thought I thought it was great, and I, one of the last things I'll say that I really really loved is when they're having a, a conversation. I don't think if I don't remember what it was, but they're t- basically telling each other they love each other, father and son. And I thought that scene was really felt very truthful from the actors, so it really brought those characters to life in that moment. So I love how the film ended up being a little bit more about that towards the end. It kind of mm-hmm. shifted while still maintaining the whole similar tone. And again, that's kind of what you see in epics, yeah. like especially older epics from the 50s, uh, 40s, 60s that are really, really long, like Giant or Ben-Hur, is that they go cover a, a variety of, um, or a large period of time, and you see the evolution of these characters. And at, almost towards the end, it shifts into a completely slightly different story, but still within the realm of what they initially started and i think that's what makes a really really yep. great film exactly it's yeah. it's this thing that it's this acknowledgement that no matter how 
far you go around the world, it you're still have to deal with what's within as well. That you can't. That's right. Right. Yeah. There's the 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 spiritual and the physical mm-hmm. all together, and uh, mm-hmm. it 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 really takes a a microscope to that right at the very end of the film. Yes, I love it. Yep, good film. That is the end of the episode. Thank you all for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the show. Please do recommend us to any of your friends that you think would be interested, as the more listeners we have, the easier it will be to keep doing this. Do check out the21strewrite.com, that's spelt with a 2 and a 1, the21strewrite.com, and subscribe to us using the RSS feed in your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Thank you.